This is a Mr. Thrive Media production. Wish I had a million dollars. Hot dog! Hello, small business warriors. I'm Joel Volk, and welcome to Small BizCast, where twice a month I explore the lives of small business owners to dig a bit deeper and expose strengths, weaknesses, ideas, and challenges with blemishes and all. As I look back at my years in business, I remember that there are many, many times I needed a lawyer to just poke their nose in and take a look and see what they could do to help. Sometimes I just needed advice on a lease. Other times I needed to have a contract that a customer wanted me to sign or a vendor wanted me to sign and I wanted someone to look at it. Sometimes I had to worry about employment law. Other times I needed to change my corporation, make partnership agreements, things on that level. So I'm very proud that we are sponsored by a firm that specializes in these types of things for small businesses. Coincidentally, it's called the Small Business Law Firm. Scott Williams is the principal attorney at the Small Business Law Firm. He's the go-to guy for anything related to small business matters. I like to think of them as the Swiss Army knife for your business. So when you're ready, and even if you're not ready, keep it on hand because you might be ready sooner than you know, call 855-5-BIZ-LAW. That's 855-524-9529. Ask for Scott, mention the Small Biz Cast, and remember they're a great resource should things get ugly. Today's guest is the inspirational Tony Coretto of the blog Declaring Freedom. Tony is an enlightened business leader who understands that being in business is really about being free. He explains what that freedom means, how to achieve it, and what to do when you get it. As you listen to this interview of Small BizCast, you will find comfort in knowing that you are not alone. Hopefully, you'll learn something while finding inspiration and ideas from the people I introduce you to, like Tony. Hopefully, he'll laugh with us too. Hot dog, it's a wonderful life. I was very excited to interview you after reading what your passion is. I have to tell you that declaring freedom is such a big concept, especially in, in a business and someone running a business. And when we ask people that are, are consulting clients what they want out of their business, freedom is rarely what comes up, but freedom is what everything they ask for translates into. You who have studied it and who write about it are what what a great topic to bring to the small biz cast so great can you well, tell i'm me excited to talk about it <laughs> so can you tell me a little bit about your backstory how you got to that uh, place sure that, sure um i mean you know how far back do you want me to go i was born in canarsie brooklyn <laughs> i don't have to go back that far um you know my my business was a, a kind of vanilla flavored consulting business i say vanilla flavored because you know we didn't create any brand new product or service. I mean, we, we did have some software that we created, but basically it was, you know, my, my business partner and I were high school friends and then college roommates and buddies. And we decided we were going to start a business that was basically a consulting business. You know, we, we knew that there were some issues with uh, customer data and analytics in the financial services industry. So we decided to focus on that. And, you know, 25 years later, we were still doing the same thing. You know, obviously things changed a lot over those 25 years. Technology changed and we created, you know, a, a software platform to uh, ingest lots of transactional data and create offers for customers. But, you know, at some point we decided that, you know, we could better, you know, grow and serve our customers if we merged with a bigger firm. Uh, and we didn't really look for that deal. That deal sort of found us when uh, when an acquirer came along and, you know, it took us about nine months to go through the due diligence and, and make everybody happy with the deal. And then we, you know, joined that bigger firm. And, and at that point, I, I realized, I think, you know, what freedoms I had as a as a small business owner, you know, the freedom of of self-determination and uh, working with, you know, one partner was very different from working with 24 partners in a, in a much larger firm. And I lost that autonomy that I really prized. And I think that's why a lot of people, you mentioned that, you know, small business people generally don't tend to think about freedom as a primary goal. Maybe they think about money or they think about, you know, this, they have an entrepreneurial seizure, as Michael Gerber said in the book, The E-Myth. He said, most people, most small business people are, are practitioners who just decide, wow, I can do this. I'm going to make a business out of it. And they don't realize that that's, running a business is very different from doing a practice. 
So, you know, running a law firm is different from being a lawyer. You know, running a medical practice is different from being a doctor. So we kind of had that entrepreneurial seizure. Uh, and what we were interested in was, uh, we felt we were interested in, you know, money and, and becoming successful. But one of the things that we kind of overlooked was the self-determination aspect. When we sold the company, we realized, wow, that's what we're, that's what really it was all about. <laughs> it really was right, about right. deciding what we wanted to do working together in a small team, having people who are aligned with our mission so that we could have the freedom to sort of self-determine. And so, you know, after about, about two and a half years, I left that, I left the acquiring company, uh, you know, cashed in my options and, and uh, sort of semi-retired. Now I, um, I'm an entrepreneur in residence with NYSERDA, the New York State Energy Research and Development Authority, and I mentor startups. So I'm coaching about five startups right now in various aspects like, you know, strategy, customer discovery, financing options, basically, you know, how to write and execute a business plan. How do you, how do you make this work? How do you go from entrepreneurial seizure to actually having a functioning uh, business? That's been a lot of fun. But through it all, I have really, you know, focused on preserving my own personal freedom, but also, you know, helping those who are about to go down this path think about what it is they really want out of, you know, out of creating their, their business, you know, in a large part, you know, people do it because they think, you know, we've got a great idea and wouldn't it be fun to do this great idea? We could make a lot of money and, uh, you know, that'll be great. And it doesn't really go beyond that. Sometimes it's a mission driven company. You know, you really, uh, you have a founder who's very passionate about, you know, creating a better mousetrap because he thinks it will improve the lives of people around the world. That's fine too. But, they're all united in this kind of idea that, you know, they can somehow do things differently. They can do things better. They want to, but they want to be able to be free to determine that on their own, right? They want to be the one driving the bus uh, and making the decisions. They don't want to get on the bus and have somebody be uh, somebody else tell them where to sit and where they're going. So self-determination is an element of, of freedom. But when I think of a startup phase of a business, I think you're anything but free. You have, you're really a, a slave to the business, a slave to the investors, a slave to so much until you get to the, the point where the business starts working for you. So are you able to coach your startup entrepreneurs into having more freedom than the traditional entrepreneur has, who's just 24 seven eating, breathing, sleeping the business? Yeah, I, I ultimately think that's destructive and, and self-denial never is the key to achieving a, a goal. Uh, yeah, you need discipline, you need self-discipline, but you can't deny yourself sleep um, or exercise or good nutrition uh, in order to achieve it because you then become less able to achieve it because you are destroying the very tool you need to get you where you need to go, where you want to go. So balance is a critical part of the entrepreneurship. I, I, think, I think it is. And, you know, I wish I had learned this earlier. Um, it sort of, you know, I, I sort of learned this in the middle of my career and then I forgot it, <laughs> you know, after our initial startup phase, probably after about 10 years, you know, we were really firing on all cylinders. We were growing, we were on the Inc 5,000 list of fastest growing companies in America four years in a row. Um, and you know, we had a great team. Things were really firing on all cylinders and I had the time you know, because I had the team and the organization and the processes in place to take more time for myself. But then after the, you know, the Great Recession, uh, which was great for us, I mean, 2007 through 2010 were the four years that we were on the Inc. 5000 list. Um, after that, um, as banks started to, you know, restructure and come out of the financial crisis, um, a lot of them, uh, you know, a lot of our clients looked we're, we're trying to reduce expenses and look at better ways to do things in-house. Uh, and so that was our bread and butter. And so, you know, our revenue started slipping after that. It was like, wow. So good times, bad times were good for us and good times were not so good. <laughs> um, and then I kind of forgot those lessons. I started, I started, you know, working too much, ignoring my diet. I gained 25 pounds. Uh, I, you know, was a wreck emotionally and physically. Um, because I forgot those lessons mm -hmm. and I rediscovered them after I, you know, I left, uh, I left the company that bought us uh, and I sort of encapsulated that into these five freedoms, you know, and I, and I think that that's still over the last two and a half years as I've been, you know, thinking about that and writing about it and, and trying to implement it, 
I think that's a pretty a pretty robust framework. You know, you need to have five you know competencies, five areas of freedom in order to be personally free. Uh, and I classified them as physical, mental, social, spiritual, and financial. And I put them in that order because I think physical they're I think they're in roughly that order in terms of priority and foundation. So you really need to work on your on your physicality. You know, um, if you don't, if you're not getting enough sleep, if you're not getting proper hydration, if your diet sucks, if you drink too much, if you smoke, if you're overweight, if you don't exercise, if you don't have um, uh, the energy that you need and the positivity you need, the rest of it is you're not going to get anything. Um, it's so much harder to to have a successful business, I think, if you're working uphill against yourself. Right. That makes sense. So once you once you dial in the physical, so you always need entrepreneurs, especially because they are, you know, they need to operate at 100 percent efficiency, 100 percent of the time. Uh, they need to be always on. So how do you how do you be always on? This is uh, Stephen Covey said that one of the most important things to do is take time to sharpen the saw. If you don't sharpen the saw, then what are you doing? You're trying to saw a piece of wood with a dull saw. So it takes you 10 times as long to do it. And you get frustrated and angry while you're doing it. And you don't do a very good job because the saw is dull. So sharpening the saw is about physical, mental, because once you have your physicality dialed in, then you can talk about, well, you know, what's my thought curation like? Am I negative? Am I positive? Am I grateful for what I have? Am I always looking for solutions rather than looking for problems? All of that stuff, you know, arises directly from dialing in your physical freedom. So I think if you don't put you those that, two in place, then you're gonna, then it's gonna be very difficult for you. Even if you work 24 hours a day, if you don't have at least those two components in place, it's gonna be much more difficult for you to create a successful startup. So you put emotional behind physical as, because physical creates the emotional stability. Yeah, that's my, that's my, uh, and you know, I've, I've read a bunch of stuff on, on uh, neurobiology and neuroscience. And, you know, I'm a, not to be too verbose about it, but I'm, I'm like a behavioral reductionist. You know, I, I believe that, that our behaviors are really, really arise from our, our physical makeup uh, and that our physical makeup, you know, our brains are the source of our thoughts, but they're a physical component. So if you have a strong, healthy body, you know what, you're going to, your thoughts are going to be better. You're going to be able to think more clearly. You're going to be more positive. Um, you're not going to be as anxious or depressed or wandering. So if you dial in the physical first, your behaviors will follow, and then your thoughts will follow from that. So, so I, I, I had it backwards. You know, I thought I thought for years it was it was completely backwards. But if you focus on the physical first, then it's much easier to focus on the mental and the emotional. So Tony, there are some people that are unlucky health-wise. They have health problems and they can't always control, you know, the, the physical, the physical plant of their body, right? How mm -hmm. are they able to overcome that or is it just a bigger challenge? Yeah, you know, I think, uh, and I've, I've read lots of inspiring stories and, and spoken to lots of people who, uh, who have overcome, you know, tremendous physical challenges. Um, and, you know, there, you, you read about people who have, um, asthma and yet become Olympic athletes uh, and people who have diabetes and run marathons. Uh, yeah, or, I think um, I think Jack Lalane was a was a diabetic heavy kid. Was he? Yeah. Yeah. So and I just read uh, I'm a subscri subscribed to Adventure Cyclist, which is an organization that promotes um, you know uh, uh, creating bike routes, safe bike routes across the country. And they are, they originally started as Bike Across America. They they just ran a cover story. No, it was Bicycling Magazine that ran a cover story on a one-legged uh, cyclist. Uh, so here's a guy who had an accident, lost his leg in his 20s, and decided you know he he was going to make his life mean something. He was going to inspire other people in spite of his disability and difficulty. So, so I think that caveat to that is, you know, we, nobody has to be an Olympic athlete to have the mental, the physical freedom part of this dialed in. They just have to be as healthy as they can be given their, you know, physical limitations. You know, if you have one leg or no legs, well, you know, obviously it's going to be more difficult for you to like run a marathon, um, but you can be healthy in other ways. Um, you can, you know, focus on your upper body strength. You can focus on your diet. You can focus on um, your energy levels. 
there are all sorts of ways to to work with what you have. I mean, basically, in every one of these freedoms, you work with what you have to get as good as you can be, because that's how you dial into your own personal freedom, right? We all have varying levels of of competencies and capacities, um, and that's I think the the secret here is not to get discouraged because you you can't be an Olympic athlete or because you can't curate all your thoughts and you you know, you're still thinking negatively or you're surrounding yourself with the wrong people. It's a process. And right. we all, you know, it's a lifelong process uh, and we all get better. Um, we don't all achieve the same levels of freedom, but we can all achieve, you know, what we can uh, and constantly work toward that. It's fascinating. What, what was, so after mental, what was the next uh, pillar? Um, social. Uh, and the reason I, I think of social as, as the next one is that once you've kind of dialed in your physical and mental freedom, um, you're now free to surround yourself with people who are going to support those goals that you have and to support your, you know, your newfound physical and mental freedom. So, you know, why it's, it's basically hanging out with people who are going to help you and not hurt you. Right. So, you know, and this is very, very difficult, right? Because we are, you know, what's the old saying? You are, you are the sum of the five people you hang out with the most often. So if you are hanging out with people who are drinking a lot, um, it's going to be much more difficult for you not to have a drink. Mm -hmm. um, or if you're hanging out with people whose idea of a good time is to sit on the couch and watch television seven hours a day, it's going to be hard for you to hang out with them and go out for a run or go out for a bike ride. So you have to be, uh, I think, pretty ruthless about curating your, your social network. Um, and, you know, it's not, it's, it's not necessarily self-centered to want to hang out with people who are going to be better for you. Right. Uh, I think it's just, you know, it helps to make you a better person, but it also helps to make them a better person. You know, if, if you, it's, these are self-reinforcing behaviors. I mean, you mentioned it earlier, you like to go bicycling in the mornings um, with, with a friend. That's, that's to me is like the most wonderful thing you can do with a friend is to go out and have a, a great, you know, physical time, go to a concert, go out for a bike ride, do something that's, that's elevating uh, and that helps you with your, with your freedoms. I think um, that's so important for a variety of reasons. First of all, I think that if you ever, when, when, I, when I'm interviewing people for a position, I like to know who their friends are because sometimes you can tell more about a person by who their friends are than, than you can by what they're telling you. And so you can ask, mm -hmm. what do you do with your friends and how do you spend your free time? You can ask those questions and you learn a lot about a person. I can tell you, you certainly do that when you're, when you're in the dating world. You, you know, if, you, if, you, if you're you know, dating uh, somebody and they've got crazy friends, you probably, have, <laughs> probably have a crazy person yes, funny. They, haven't, probably they probably haven't revealed right. it, right? <laughs> so so that, I, think, I think there's a little life lesson there in terms of you know, judging people by who they, who they with. And then also in terms of self-improvement, I do believe you have to put yourself with people that elevate you to your best self and try not to spend time with people that are what I refer to as noisemakers, people that will tell you all the reasons mm -hmm. your ideas won't work. You know, sometimes they're right, by the way, but and if they have a good reason for it, maybe you should listen to them. But at least at least you want someone that's going to be encouraging about navigating the speed bumps to, that keep you from being successful versus somebody saying, that'll never work. That's a dumb idea. If it was a good idea, someone would have already done it by now. You, you right. know, around those people because they, they're energy killers when it comes to building a business. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. And I, and I think, you know, if you if you follow this from from the personal to the business, um, wouldn't you want to have a business that was full of people who were, you know, physically taking care of themselves, mentally on their game, you know, sharp, focused, fun to be around, positive, and who likewise had a whole bunch of people in their network who were supporting them to be that kind of person? I'd, I'd want a company full of those people. Of course. You know, be, uh, I want to be, I want to be a person like that. And I want to surround myself with people like that. My career is spent in office automation. So I'm always in other people's offices, at least during non COVID times. And you can tell when you walk in the door from the energy in the room, whether you're in a healthy environment or a, or a stifled environment. And sometimes it's not physical. It's the leadership, you know, is very controlling versus leadership is very, you know, empowering. You can, mm -hmm. I, I've always been able to tell when I walk in the door, you know, what kind of environment I'm in just by how people are and how their mm -hmm. physical body language is and how the office looks and how there's, if there's a, if there's joy in the room and who wants to be in a company that's, you know, an eight hour workday that has isn't joyful, who wants to be in there? Yeah. How is that possible to bring out the best 
the best performance out of those people that feel like they can't wait for five o'clock to come and leave versus that they're joining yeah. that kind of job. So it yeah. moves you to put a, put that energy out there to be sure. Yeah. And I think, you know, a part of, um, you know, what we were talking about earlier is, you know, how can you be personally free in a startup where it's 24 by seven? And I've often thought that people who work 24 by seven are being inefficient. There, There's always a better way. There's a better way for you to get sleep. You can figure this out, right? People have figured this out. You can get sleep, get exercise, be positive, do all the things you need to do to be more efficient. Because if you focused on that, you could get more done in a seven hour day then somebody who is inefficient and not sharpening the saw could get done in a 10 hour day. I, you know, I might, I don't want people on my team who are working 12 hours a day. They're burning themselves out. They're going to be inefficient. They're going to be cranky. Don't do that. You're doing something wrong if you're working 12 hours a day. And it took me a while to figure that out because initially I thought, wow, that's like a badge of honor. He's working 12 hours a day. That's he's working really hard. No, he's working really inefficiently. Right. (laughs) You know, you're working harder, not smarter. You need to work smarter. Yeah, I remember uh, it was actually my brother-in-law telling me that he was, he worked for a company that were a German company. And so everybody was very precise in terms of the time that they're supposed to work and the time they weren't. But he, they live in Britain. And so he decided to time his day around traffic. He started early, but he would always work a couple hours later just to avoid the traffic. And one day the boss noticed and, and, and he thought he was going to get an attaboy for you know, putting in an extra couple hours. And the boss looked at me and said, what, do you mean that you can't get this done in eight hours? And so he, he had, it was just a paradigm shift. Though. Yeah, if you, you really, when you, when you flip it on its head like that, it's like, wow, right. staying late is a signal that I'm inefficient. Uh-oh, right. you know, I better, <laughs> I better learn how to get this done in eight hours because this is an eight hour job, not a 12 hour job. Right. Wow, you know, that kind of, that really turns it around, turns it mm-hmm. right around. Uh, and I think that's all that's related. This is a good segue to the next freedom, which is, you know, spiritual freedom or freedom to define your own meaning in life. You know, once you are, you know, dialed in your physical, mental and, and social freedoms or you, you know, you're in, in as good a shape as you can be. You're positive, you're focused uh, and you're surrounding yourself with people who are helping you to do that, to be that. Um, you're you're kind of free to, to figure out the meaning of your own life. Um, what, what are you going to do with it, with this one wild and crazy precious life that you've been given? Do you really want to overwork 12 hours a day when four hours of those are meaningless, you know, because you've decided not to be efficient and not to think through what it is that you're doing enough that you haven't figured out how to work eight hours a day? Um, you are free to now determine, um, what it is that gives meaning to you, what gets you up in the morning? It could very well be your job, right? I mean, if you have it like a lot of, you know, mission-driven people who are doctors and nurses and people who have startups that are, you know, like the, the guys who started, uh, what was that, Blue Ocean, the, the company that's, uh, that's dedicated to getting rid of plastics in the, uh, in the ocean by making, you know, their donations go to select, picking up the plastics and then they turn them into little bracelets, which you buy. So they're actually removing plastic from the ocean and you get to wear it around your wrist. Um, you know, that's a mission driven organization and that's their meaning. It's like, wow. But a lot of people, for a lot of people, their, their job is not their meaning of life. Maybe their meaning of life is, you know, creating a better life for their kids or, um, you know, helping other people achieve personal freedom or, you know, being, uh, you know, an an evangelist for saving the planet. You know, maybe they want to, you know, the climate change is what is what is motivating them. If, if everyone were free to, uh, and we are, you know, we, we fool ourselves into thinking that we have to get our meaning from someplace else or that our boss determines, you know, our meaning. It's like, no, you get to determine it for yourself. And you get to also determine that, you know, your job may not be the thing that, that drives you. Maybe it's something else. That's fine. Um, but in the workplace, I would rather have, you know, somebody who's honest about, you know, their, their own meaning and tell me, you know, this job is, is great, but it's a job. And, and really my mission in life is, you know, to, to save the planet. And I'm just waiting till the day when I can go out there. It's like, great. That, that's, that's terrific. We're going to help, you know, we're going to help you support that. Right. You know, companies I think should help support their people in achieving meaningful lives for themselves Mm -hmm. because, you know, you don't want, again, you don't, it's, it's kind of selfish to think this way, but, but a startup should be, 
you know, make the most efficient use of the time of the people that it has to achieve business goals. And one of the ways to do that is to make the people on your team believe that you are there to support them in achieving their own personal goals and their own personal meaning in life. Because that means they're going to be they're going to be much more efficient. They're going to be much more focused, much more dedicated to your organization. Right? Isn't that what you want in a start? I think that's who, those are the people you want on your team. People. Who yeah, they'll look at your organization as a means to achieve their own goals. Yeah. Your goals. Yeah. Of course, that's what you. Want. That's right. You know, yeah. it's it's like you know such an amazing thing is to be to be honest about your meaning in life, to realize you can create it, and you can work together with other people who have different meanings. You're there to support each other in whatever way you can, because we're all in this thing together. Now we have to be genuine about it. It can't be a manipulation. It has to be a genuine yeah. you bring to it. Otherwise, you know, if you say uh, own it and it's not really part of who you are, then you probably should skip that because it'll come across as phony and you'll, you'll have the opposite effect. But if it really yeah. is you are, you should bring that out, let that percolate to the surface and be uh, yeah. supportive and real in that. that. That's why I, one of the, uh, I once went to a uh, talk by Tony C, um, who is the founder of Zappos? I thought you were no, talking. Yeah. <laughs> Different spelling. Ah. That's H S I E H, I think. C. I see. And Tony created this incredibly quirky company culture, you know, selling shoes online. And it was kind of when when he bought the company, it was like a very you know pedestrian, so to speak, company um, that you know had a, just like an online retailer. But what he did was create a culture where people were free to define how they worked um, and their own, you know, weirdness. Um, so he created a what they call the culture book, and I have a copy of it here in my office somewhere. Uh, and every year he asked people to create their own culture statements, like what do you want the culture of this company to be? And they, people were incredibly enthusiastic about that because they got to define. They got to take what was a prosaic job, you mm -hmm. know, selling shoes online and make it incredibly meaningful. So you had all these people who were like customer service reps who defined the meaning of their job as I'm going to help this person with whatever they call about anything right. at all. I'm there for them. So um, so famously, um, the, he had he told us stories which I found were incredible that he had customer service reps who who were on the phone for like 12 hours with people uh, because they they just felt that they, they needed to help them work through some personal issues. Right. Because that, that's how they define their mission within the company. It's right. like, look, this may be a shoe company, but I, if somebody calls me and is in trouble, I'm going to help them. Right, right. And they realized that a lot of people were on their team were so committed to that that they were going to do it no matter what. So they said, well, you know what? That's part of the culture. You want to do that? That's we're we're here for anybody. Uh, we're gonna we're here to solve our customers' problems, not right. just sell them shoes. Unbelievably successful company. They got sold to Amazon for like a billion and change. That they kept it as a separate business unit because they did not want to screw with something that absolutely worked. Um, and they still have that you know weird culture today of people defining exactly the meaning of how they you know how they want to show up at work, what they want to accomplish, and they do not you know like a lot of um, uh, call center companies define success as, you know, calls number of number yeah. of calls per hour, number of right. resolutions per hour. Right. That's not a metric for Zappos. Right. Not at all. No, I love that. And if you think about it, I mean, that's how, you know, the, the concept of, of act big, but think small is really part of that culture. Of course, of course, the, the brand loyalty that's going to create among the people and the, and the buzz that's going to create it only can pay dividends. And if you're looking at the metric of how many solutions per hour, you'll never let that happen. Uh, absolutely not. So absolutely it takes not. it takes a pretty confident, uh, uh, you know, leadership to let that happen and give that give that root and let it take hold. That's interesting. Yeah, and and then the let it define world. let it define the entire company's culture. Right. You know, it's it's pretty amazing. So yeah, that so that's one of the you know I find that incredibly inspiring, and I think that's a that's a lesson for you know pretty much every startup and every small business is allow your people the freedom to express themselves, to be who they really are, and to interpret, you know, the mission of the company uh, with enough latitude so that you get your mission accomplished, but they also, you know, can create their own meaning out of this and, and maybe help achieve their own missions. So I assume that has to work in concert with setting the clear goals for the company. Otherwise, people can easily lose sight of what their job is. 
Yeah, right, right, exactly. You don't yeah. want every, you don't want all those Zappos customer service reps, you know, on the phone, each, <laughs> you know, handling two phone calls a day. Right. Because, you know, so there have to be some guidelines about what it is that you do, right? There need to be guardrails to prevent people from going off the road. Right. Um, but that's what I think in, um, um, I've been reading about, um, you know, conscious capitalism and leaderless organizations where um, they're very flat organization types. And the boss is really not, you know, the CEO, the boss is the mission statement. It's the vision. It's right. the why. This is Simon uh, Sinek, right, on, you know, first figure out why. And in, in a concentric, he calls it the golden circle, right? So in the middle is why. And then on, on top of that is what. And then the outside circle is how. So he said, most companies know what they do and they know how they do it and they focus on that. But the most successful companies dig deeper and they find out why they're doing what they're doing. And that why informs everything they do. And if you focus on the why, then people you know, govern themselves. So, you know, Apple, you know, if Apple focused on the what and the how, it's like, well, we make communications devices and we make uh, computers and we make uh, tablets for people to listen to music and view documents and stuff. And what, you know, well, we create all these devices and we distribute them through our stores and networks. That's not very inspiring. Yeah. And it's not really what Apple does. You know, the why is we're, you know, we're empowering people to do all kinds of stuff with their lives, with their time, that they could never have imagined that they were being even capable of doing 10 years ago. So we want to constantly reimagine ways for people to, you know, do more with their lives and give them the tools for them to do that. That's their why. It's like, wow, that's a big, huge why. No wonder Apple is so successful. This is a good time to talk about your blog because I read a couple of your blog posts and I think that you really hit on a lot of this when you're writing. The, the, um, the blog is declaringfreedom.com. And, and um, I think the why is such a critical element. And is it, is it okay that the why is I want to make money? Is that okay? Or is, it, is the why deeper than that? And is there anything wrong with money being the goal? Um, yeah, I think ultimately, I mean, um, and speaking about Steve Jobs and, and Apple, um, I think the making money should never be the goal because right. A, it doesn't have the power to, to move people. B, it doesn't really get at a, the deeper question of, you know, well, why, why does the company really exist? If the company exists just to make money, well, I mean, every company exists to make money in one way right. or another, right? You have to make a profit. But what's, what's uniquely different about our company than about some other company. I think the why is generally uh, unique and it is you know, relevant to your contribution to the world and to mankind. You know? So I, I, think in, I think you need to think of the why in, in very big, grand, moving terms, right? Goethe said, make no small plans. They have no power to move men's imagination. You don't want to make a small why like oh we we, we make money <laughs> right no you don't you don't make money um so uh so i think the why has to be very deep and you have to ask the question over and over again like why are we why do we even exist mm -hmm. you know why is the company you know have a right to be here what what do we offer uniquely that nobody else can offer that people can really get behind uh, and I think the most successful companies really, you know, answer that question. Look at Nike, you know, just do it. Well, why do they exist? If you look at the what and the how, it's like, well, we make sneakers and athletic apparel so people can go out running. Is that really why they exist, though? Right. They, they exist so people can, you know, make the, you know, absolutely make the most out of their their physical lives. They want people to be as healthy as they possibly can be and get Olympic gold medals and go run marathons and, you know, crush their physical goal. They want people to really, you know, get out there and get off the couch and be healthy. They want a healthier planet and they want everybody on the planet to be wearing a Nike sneaker and a Nike hat and a Nike shirt and a Nike shorts because they feel like they're making the best equipment for you to do that stuff with. So, so that's what, and if you keep asking that question over and over again, eventually you get down to the real why. You know, if you ask it three or four times and you ask a bunch of people on your team, you get down to the why that is really motivating. And if you do that, then I think you'll find that the why becomes the boss and not, you know, the leader. You know, then, then the CEO, the CEO's job becomes discovering new opportunities and bringing those opportunities to the team and saying, okay, we discovered this new thing. Let's work on this. What do you think? 
And they I want to point out that I want to point out that this is you know this is a small biz cast. This isn't the Nike biz cast. So this, <laughs> this is accessible yes, to this is accessible to any size business. And that that consciousness of why if if you know I was I was talking the other day to a, a gardener who's trying to build his business into a landscape company. His mm -hmm. is is perhaps to create vacation in everybody's backyard. His why could be so much about lifestyle that he brings to people. Yeah, of being home that he brings people. And so we were talking in those terms yesterday and it was like a light bulb went off and then all of a sudden he could see that his business was much more than a guy who's mowing lawns. And so that, that that's very empowering to have that, that conversation and any size should be able to answer that question. Oh, absolutely. And I think, I think it's even more important for small businesses because in a small business, there's an awful lot of friction and wasted time. If the, if, you know, you have a, a management structure where you don't trust the people in your team and they have to, you, they have to be told exactly what to do. You waste an awful lot of time with that. You need people who are self-starters, who are independent, who are going to lead themselves. Uh, and the way to do that is to have a clear mission, vision, and a why. And if you do that, then you can give people pretty wide latitude. You know, they have a job description. You know, but they need to tell you, you know, what they're going to do to achieve the why and the mission and the vision. How do they plan to contribute to that? And they own that. Uh, and then you, you got to step back and let them do their jobs. You can't micromanage them because that'll kill, you know, that's that's one of the things that just kills productivity is micromanagement. It takes away people's autonomy. Um, right. Daniel Pink, uh, the author of Drive, said that, you know, we need. Uh, several kinds of autonomies in order to be really productive at work. You need to have autonomy of uh, task. You get to decide what you want to do. Autonomy of time, when you want to do it and what time frame you want to do it in. Autonomy of team, who are you mm -hmm. going to do it with? Um, these things you don't get in an organization where it's top-down leadership and you're told what to do, who to do it with, by when. It's like, talk about a soul-crushing experience. But if you flip around and you say, this is our why, our mission, our vision, this is why we exist. How are you going to be part of that? How are you going to help, given your job description of being a customer service rep, how are you going to interpret that? And how are you going to you know, make us achieve that why? Within, that, within those confines, you have total attitude to you know, create and do the job the way you see fit to help us achieve our why. I'm not the boss. The why is the boss. You got to right. do that. That's why we all. That's why we're all here. We're all serving that same big why. That's and I think if you do all those things, you know, if you if you die, that's why financial freedom is like the last thing. I think if you pay attention to all those things, the the financial freedom comes. It it comes, you know, naturally and automatically. Um, you know, we have to do certain things to preserve financial freedom, like live within our means, spend less than you uh, than you earn. Uh, don't realize that spending is not, you know, the key to happiness. It, it's, it's really, you know, buying another Farkle is not, it is not going to make you happier. It's probably going to make you unhappy. There's farkle? such a thing as the, the Farkle, you know, a Farkle is, it's a, we use that term on the, on the motorcycle. A Farkle is a, a shiny sparkly thing that you add to your motorcycle that you really don't need. Gotcha. It's like, boy, look at the shiny new Farkle I just got. Like, <laughs> Wow, what does it do? I don't know, but it's shiny. Look at it. It's great, right? <laughs> you know, back in the days when I used to pretend like I played golf, I used to uh, actually go out and, you know, buy better golf clubs and spend money on better balls. As, and and you know what it did? It made my out-of-bound balls go further <laughs> out of bounds. <laughs> so, yeah, so, I think uh, we yeah. all have those. We uh, Golfing is a good example of a hobby where a lot of it is about, you know, buying the next Farkle. Uh, it's like, <laughs> wow, I got a big Bertha. Well, I got a bigger Bertha. Well, yeah. <laughs> Oh my it God. just made it harder for me to find the balls that I. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah. So so uh, so you went over that fast. So the, the 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 final the final of the five pillars was financial freedom. Right. Right. And I think if you've I think if you've dialed in, you know, for example, if you've dialed in your uh, let's just look at you know social freedom. If you've dialed in your social freedom, so that you're hanging out with people who are you know helping you to be your best self. You know, chances are those people are not going to encourage you to go out and spend money you don't have or to spend money on a useless thing to impress them because they're not going to be that kind of people. They're not going to be right. the people who are going to be impressed by the car you drive up in. They're going to be impressed by, you know, the kind of person you are and what kind of character do you have. 
that's going to be much more important. You begin to realize that all those things you thought you needed money for, you know, maybe you don't need money for. Um, you know, um, there are an awful lot of wealthy people on the planet who I think are trapped on this hedonic treadmill where, you know, they've reached a certain level of wealth where, you know, you can fly your private jet. Do you really need the private jet to be happy? I don't think so. Um, I could be wrong, but I suspect that the private jet is, you know, a convenience toy that, you know, makes it a lot easier for you to jet around the world and impress your friends and, you know, do bigger, grander missions. But frankly, most people on the planet do just fine without a private jet. Sure. Um, and in fact, you know, numerous studies have been done that, that show that um, any income over some small amount, I think it's like $75,000, um, doesn't make you substantially happier. Uh, the, the happiness curve kind of levels off at $75,000 because that's the level at which, you know, you can generally satisfy your basic needs. You get food, clothing, and shelter, and, you know, entertainment. Um, so you want to avoid being on that part of the curve where the more money you make, the more money you spend to support a lifestyle that just spirals out of control. And that you get only from dialing in your physical, mental, social, and spiritual freedom before you dial in. The, if you go out and say, well, I need $10 million to be happy. Why? You got to do these other things first. You may not need $10 million. After you dial this in, you may realize, wow, I'm perfectly happy with $500,000 because that's all I need to go like bicycling every day. Maybe that's, you know, and to volunteer at my local soup kitchen and to work on my book and to write my poetry and to contribute to, you know, solving the problem of climate change because I volunteer at these organizations. That's an entirely different way of looking at it because you're asking yourself first, why do I need the money? What am I going to do with that money? If I'm using the money to buy more farkles, then you really need to question why you're buying those sparkles. Is it because you feel insecure? You feel like you need to demonstrate that you're successful? Why? Why don't you work on that problem first before you go out and decide you need to dedicate your life to making $10 million? So the business leads to freedom with these five pillars. And then once, and that leads to happiness, true happiness. Is that yeah, the I think, that, and I think, and happiness is kind of a, um, you know, I think it's an overused term. I think, um, people think of it often as, you know, just the affect of happiness, like being, you know, having a smile on your face all the time and feeling happy. Well, it's the, affect, it's the abstract of unhappiness. It's really just. Uh, I, yeah, I think you want to, you want to get rid of the things in your life that make you unhappy. You know, you'd rather not right. be poverty stricken and you don't want to be depressed and anxious. Once you get rid of those things, I think you're free to concentrate on the things that bring you joy. And I think mm -hmm. that's really the concept that you're aiming for is, satisfaction, joy, contentment with your life. I think that is more important than, you know, nobody is happy 100% of the time. That affect of happiness where you're smiling or laughing or cheerful. But I think you can aim to be content most of the time, you know, almost 100% of the time. If you've dialed in all these things, you can be content. Um, and that's, that's worth more than being happy all the time. Because if you're content, then you're grateful for what you have. You always start with where you are. You're never looking at where you wanna be and dissatisfied because you're not there. You have a satisfaction that you are living life uh, the way you wanna live it. Uh, that's much more important, I think, than you know a fleeting feeling of happiness. I mean, you'll have lots of those fleeting feelings of happiness, but I think more what, what's more important is contentment and satisfaction and the deep joy that you get from doing things that are meaningful to you with people who are meaningful to you who are gonna help you achieve those things and doing it you know, within your means in a self-sustaining kind of way, all of those, that's what all of those five freedoms are all about is aiming for this contentment. And if you do that, I think you can, you know, you can achieve it. Um, and I think I learned those lessons too late. I mean, I think it took me about 25 years too long to, to, <laughs> to learn these lessons. I think I, if I had myself to talk to 25 years ago, I would, I probably would have done things differently. How many, how many people that are, you know, just young and starting out have the ability to get to that place without having a mentor like you or without having really an advanced psyche? Um, it really does take, because I remember, I remember reading a book in the seventies called Precision Nirvana, and it really talked about taking away. A great title. <laughs> yeah. You know who wrote it was uh, Baba Ram Dass, who was. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
yeah so it, it but it was it was about taking away all those obstacles that you think make you happy that really don't make you happy it was about finding 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 uh joy from within that said i was a young entrepreneur and i probably forgot everything that i read in that book five minutes into my career because all i wanted to do was make my business succeed and make sure that that my my short-term goals led to long-term goals i don't even know if, if i even had long-term goals back then yet everything you're saying is resonating with me so deeply i want to continue the conversation and so you know it seems to me like this is like you know, light bulbs are going off, and I hope it is for the listeners as well. How do people continue this conversation with you? Well, you can always reach me at Tony at DeclaringFreedom.com or go to my website, DeclaringFreedom.com. You can subscribe to, you know, I, I publish a blog post about every month or so. I try not to overwhelm people precisely because I'm busy doing other things in my personal freedom. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I don't want to be like yoked to my keyboard all the time writing about it. I'd rather just be doing it. Um, but, you know, I, I coach people and I mentor them and, uh, you know, primarily I work with startups. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm interested in spreading these ideas and, and having, you know, deeper conversations with people about them. Because, you know, one of the things one of the things that gives me joy and meaning is to help other people, you know, achieve some greater measure of personal freedom in their own lives and some greater insights into ways to, you know, get off the the treadmill ways to get out of that hamster wheel. So the, the blog that I read of yours that stands out the most is called living with fear, a user's guide. And I thought it was, <laughs> yeah, that it was, was a good one. It, it, but it's, it's, it's almost contradictory to what we're talking about here because I don't think in those five pillars, fear is one of those things you, you mentioned earlier, early in your career when, or earlier when business started to falter and, and, and you, you lost sight of who you were in terms of physically, you gained weight and so on. All I was thinking about was that blog that I read because certainly fear was that which interrupted your, I really encourage the listeners to read that one in particular, at least during this time during COVID where we don't know what the future is going to be for our businesses and our families and our, our lifestyles. Um, I think it's a really important blog post. Thanks. Yeah, I, I had a good time writing that one because, you know, it was helping me, um, you know, kind of take a catalog of all the tools that I use in dealing with fear. Um, and I realized that, you know, uh, fear is not something that you can avoid. Um, it, it is not uh, something to suppress. You're going to experience fear, especially if, you know, like me, you try to constantly push the envelope on your comfort zone and you want to, you know, you're going to be exposed to fear on a, on a periodic basis. So we have to learn to live with it. We have to learn what it means. Um, we have to learn when it's, you know, existential fear, like somebody is attacking you or there's a saber toothed tiger right about to leap on you like our hind brains from you know 100,000 years ago are still wired that way um, but um, now you know there aren't any saber-toothed tigers and we tend to overreact we tend to over process signals and turn them into deep fear when there's really no need for it so how do we recognize that how do we dial it down um, I think you know the, we need to every one of us should you know should have those tools in our toolbox otherwise we're going to be you know especially now during COVID, economic dislocations, uh, uh, political problems, uh, social justice problems, we're going to just be living in fear constantly. Right. We don't want to do that. I mean, that's that impedes us from helping ourselves and helping other people. So we need to figure out a way to deal with it that's effective. You know, listen to the signal of fear, decide whether it's appropriate at this point. If it's not, you know, put it aside, get through it, get beyond it, learn that it is not life-threatening and understand what that feeling feels like so you can move beyond it. Fascinating. Thank you, Tony. You've been an amazing guest. Really appreciate it. Wow. Thank you, Joel. I appreciate it. For those of you that are subscribers of Small BizCast, we really appreciate it. And if you'd like to be a subscriber, just go to where you get your podcast and hit subscribe. I'd like to thank those of you who connect with us on Facebook and on LinkedIn and also on Instagram. It's really great that we're getting so many shares and comments. We really appreciate the growing audience that we're enjoying. If you'd like to ask us some business questions, have us workshop a problem, or if you're thinking about sponsoring a show, go to smallbizcast.com. There's places there to just click and write in your questions, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. 
Over the many years I've worked at Mercury Document Imaging, we've been solving business problems using technology, and now we have this new reality. Employees are working from home, and companies are trying to stay relevant and efficient and have accountability for their employees while doing so. The big problem is that the cyber criminals are working from home too, and they have been doing this longer and know what they're doing and know what vulnerabilities you've created by kind of throwing this together quickly. So now that it looks like we're going to be here for a while, it's time to think about this. I want you to reach out to my company. We'll either help you or refer you to a partner that can help you, depending on what the vulnerability is. But the first thing to do is start with an assessment, make sure that you're protected, and then find the weak link. So please call us, 818-782-1221. My extension is 25913, but call anybody at the office. We're all happy to help you, and we want to make sure that we don't have any more problems than we already have. Thanks. I'm really intrigued by the wine business. If you think about it, a winery is several businesses as one. It's manufacturing where you have to take the resources and turn it into cash as quick as possible, which contradicts making it as good as possible because you take those resources and let them age and maximize their potential. And then, of course, it's a farm where you have all the agricultural phenomenons, that variables that determine success and failure that are outside of your control. It's distribution, it's sales, it's hospitality. And that's why I wanted to interview Justin Tooley of Broken Earth Winery. And I decided to ask my friend Cliff Scott of the Scott Group, who's a branding and marketing expert and also quite the wine enthusiast, to join me in the interview. You may remember him from the sixth episode we did where we talked about branding and marketing. And Cliff and I had a great time then and we had a great time today interviewing Justin. So here's a sneak peek. That's the part that I enjoy the most. Like you said, there's so many parts to this business and you could take any one of these parts and spend a whole lifetime of learning about it. The complexity of Again, making a very good ball of wine. You want that to sit in oak as long as possible. But the business side, and Joel, I, I'm with you on that, is I look at this as a manufacturing industry. No different from a shoe company. The faster that we can get this through process one, through pot process through and out into the market and selling it, I mean, that's how you really separate yourself from the rest of the pack. Small BizCast drops every other Monday. Follow us on our socials for business tidbits and special offers and send your feedback to jv at smallbizcast.com. Thank you again to our sponsors, Mercury Document Imaging and the small business law firm. We couldn't do this without you. And of course, thanks to my producer and my son, Charlie Volk of Mr. Thrive Media. Couldn't do without him either. Thank you very much for listening. Hot dog, it's a wonderful life.